Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me at all. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or have listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestions at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendations. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible, this book is yours to keep. Forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 74 of History of the Marine Corps, The Banana Wars, Cuba. Our last episode discussed the Mexican intervention, and we also reviewed some changes the Marine Corps was facing. We ended the episode by introducing the relationship between the United States and Cuba. This episode reviews the Marines in Cuba. This was a massive undertaking for the Marine Corps. At the height of the Cuban intervention, about a third of all Marines were on the island. We'll explore what these Marines were doing on the island, how they were split up in multiple detachments, and take a look at the end of the Platt Amendment, which was the reason we got into Cuba in the first place. We'll end the episode by touching on Nicaragua and discuss what the Marines are doing to prepare for their next mission. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Per Taft's suggestion, Roosevelt requested preparation for a possible intervention with Cuba, and the War Department immediately developed plans on how to transport the expeditionary force of 18,000 U.S. troops. The task seemed easy enough, but the War Department soon realized that finding transportation was more challenging than anticipated. As plans for military intervention were taking place in Washington, President Roosevelt wanted to resolve the issue with Cuba without military force. However, he ordered that troops be ready, just in case his plan failed. The War Department couldn't activate naval transport vessels and prepare them for intervention. This would have clashed with the President's message to Cuba. So instead of using the military's transport ships, the United States purchased vessels from commercial steamship companies. President Palma didn't tolerate any plans presented by the Secretary of War, William Howard Taft. In defiance, Palma resigned on September 28th. But just before he left office, he requested the United States provide a guard force for the Cuban Treasury. Second Lieutenant Kincaid and 30 other Marines were tasked with this mission and were sent to shore on September 28th. After Palma's resignation, the Cuban Congress immediately was called in to discuss how the nation would proceed. But the moderates refused to show up. 
and without their presence, the Congress couldn't take official action, and Cuba was left without a government. Roosevelt ordered Taft to land American forces and establish a provisional government the next day. The Marine Corps mobilized 333 officers and 5,064 enlisted troops in Newport News, Virginia. They sailed for Cuba between October 7th and the 11th. The Marine Corps was ordered to supply two battalions for duty in Cuba. They were taken from different shore stations and assembled a day and a half after orders were given. One battalion was created in Boston and commanded by Lieutenant Colonel F.J. Moses. Major Edward Lowndes commanded the 2nd Battalion. But despite the speed of Marines mustering, there weren't any transport vessels to ship the Marines to Cuba. This was a classic hurry-up-and-wait scenario. When the ships finally arrived, the Marines would depart in four groups. Moses' battalion left Boston on the prairie on September 30th. Lowndes' battalion was split up into three locations. He and part of his battalion left Norfolk on the Texas two days later. Another group of Marines traveled on mail steamships from Key West and New Orleans, and the last of his battalion was made up of detachments assigned to ships of the Atlantic Fleet. They headed to Havana on the Kentucky and the Indiana. The Marines would meet up in Havana Harbor and stay there until Roosevelt gave orders to land. The two battalions would merge into the 1st Regiment, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel George Barnett. The senior commanding officer in charge of the entire operation was Naval Captain A.R. Cooden. The Commandant of the Marine Corps assigned Colonel Waller as the commander for all Marines in Cuba, and he arrived in Havana on October 1st. There were about 2,000 Marines under his command, and after a temporary government was established, a portion of the 2,000 Marines headed towards Camp Columbia, around 7 miles away. The 1st Regiment also had 500 Marines board trains and head for Cienfuegos. They arrived on September 30th, seized the town, and Barnett took charge of all the sailors and Marines in the area. The next day, Barnett sent detachments of Marines everywhere. One officer and 50 Marines were sent to relieve U.S. troops at Constancia, two officers and 75 Marines to defend Soledad, and a company of Marines were sent to occupy Santa Clara. He then sent detachments of one officer and 25 Marines to occupy multiple other towns, and detachments of 11 Marines were sent to San Marcos and Cueno, and a few other detachments were sent to smaller towns around the area. The main purpose of most of these small detachments was to protect the railway. There's a saying that Marines could sleep anywhere. It's true today, and it was true back then. Living quarters didn't exist throughout the railway, so Marines slept in railway cars, storehouses, or just under the stars. The company of Marines sent to Santa Clara had the mission of establishing peace in the city. A few thousand insurrectionists were in the area and clashes started to occur within the city. As soon as the Marines arrived, the tension started to settle. This tactic was frequently used in Cuba, and detachments were sent throughout the island to guard property, protect U.S. citizens, or just provide a show of force. All of these detachments called for additional Marines, and the core strength in Cuba 
reached its height on October 27th with around 100 officers and 2,800 enlisted. If you're interested in all the locations these detachments were sent to and the number of Marines sent to each detachment, I'll put a list up on historyofthemarinecorps.com under this episode's page. Marines were also in charge of collecting stations. These stations were responsible for disarming the rebels. That responsibility ranged from giving insurgents a few bucks for their weapons to tracking down machine guns that once belonged to the Cuban government but now were in the hands of rebel forces. By the time the army showed up on October 10th, a couple of thousand marines and more than a dozen naval vessels were already present. The situation was undoubtedly under control, which is why I find it pretty funny that Taft's 1906 report stated, quote, the army landed without opposition, unquote. The U.S. Army took command of the island, which included all sailors and Marines remaining. The Commandant of the Marine Corps issued orders which required all Marines to transfer back to assignment on ship or to the U.S. as soon as a soldier took over their responsibility. And throughout October, detachments of Marines were relieved and soldiers slowly took their place. The Marines serving on the Louisiana, Virginia, and the New Jersey were sent back to their ships on October 12th. Ten days later, 600 Marines returned to the United States. By November 1st, only 1,000 Marines would remain in Cuba, and they were reorganized into the 1st Provisional Regiment and commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Moses. The 1st Provisional Regiment was split up into smaller detachments as well. This breakdown will be up on the website too. U.S. troops faced little opposition, and this could be credited to the Marines' challenging work at disarming insurgents before the Army's arrival. Without the need to spend resources on defending posts, the U.S. focused on constructing roads and buildings throughout the island. By August 31, 1907, the number of Marines on the island was about a fifth of the number of soldiers. But Marines still managed to supply men for 11 stations, while the Army covered 18. Marines would stay in these stations until March 3, 1908, when U.S. forces withdrew from Cuba. Marines left seven of their 11 posts by December 1908, and a month later, they left the remaining four. The last 21 officers and 405 enlisted left Cuba on January 23rd. The Army would stay until April 1st. Army's Major General Thomas Berry commanded the Marines for their performance under his command. But even though U.S. troops were leaving Cuba, the United States still had an interest in the island. U.S. foreign policies were developed that kept an eye on Cuba for years. The Cuban government started to decline, and most politicians in office were either useless or corrupt. As the government grew worse, the public got angry, and revolutions started. In the middle of all this were American-owned companies, and they asked the United States to help them protect their property. The 1st Provisional Regiment of Marines was sent from the Prairie, along with the Nashville and the Paducah. The 3rd and 4th Divisions of the Atlantic Fleet and 9 battleships carried a regiment of Marines. This huge force served the purpose of protecting American property which the Cuban government welcomed at first. Marines relieved Cuban forces protecting American companies, 
which freed them to fight the rebels. Cuban President Gomez initially was against this large force, but eventually welcomed the Marines after seeing the advantage of having his troops relieved. The U.S. also assured Gomez that troops would only be used to protect American property and wouldn't interfere with Cuban affairs. U.S. companies were being attacked because of one man, the leader of the opposition, Evaristo Estenaz. He understood the policy between the two governments, and he planned to force an intervention by causing U.S. companies to worry about their property being destroyed. His goal wasn't necessarily to inflict any considerable damage. However, one of his leaders burned the U.S.-owned sugar mill at La Maya. This attack was the last straw for Gomez, and he requested the Cuban Congress to enact martial law, which they authorized. From there, things just got out of control. Estenaz reacted by threatening to burn multiple properties, and he eventually burnt railway stations and multiple buildings and plantations. By the middle of June, the situation died down considerably, and by the 22nd, the Cuban government offered amnesty to all rebel forces who turned themselves in. Estenaz would not be one of the rebels surrendering to Cuba, and he was killed by a shot in the back of his head during a battle at Maraca. His death was the final domino for the rebel forces, and by the end of June, the resistance ended. By early July, Marines would start to withdraw from Cuba, and on July 12th, the Secretary of the Navy ordered the gradual withdrawal of Marines from the Guantanamo District, which was completed two weeks later. Things were relatively quiet in Cuba for the next few years, but tensions would slowly escalate between the moderates and the liberals. Eventually, the liberals, who were led by Gomez, would take up arms again against the moderates right before an election. The Department of State warned Cuba that a government organized through unconstitutional acts wouldn't be tolerated. Party leaders will be held responsible for any illegal actions and injuries to any people or property. But this warning didn't stop Gomez, and he attacked Havana, causing the sitting president to flee. There was another revolution going on, and in the middle of it were American companies. The United States again sent battleships and six battalions of Marines. Marines were dispersed to multiple locations, and the battleships were sent to nearby sugar plantations. The manager of the Francisco Sugar Company reported that the threat to his plantation was high and requested the landing of 100 Marines to protect the sugar mills and other property. Marines under Captain Lyman landed on February 25th, and they provided protection. With the help of the United States, the Cuban government managed to cause grave damage to rebel forces, and eventually restored some level of order. The battleships left Cuba on March 20th and 21st, and the last of the Marines withdrew from Cuba on the 23rd. The Navy left a couple of naval vessels in the area, and outbreaks would occur in Cuba for the next few months. Marines were occasionally sent in, patrolled cities, and protected U.S. property. They would stay in Cuba until the outbreak of World War I, where Marines were eventually withdrawn for duty in France. For almost 20 years, the Marines in Cuba had the mission of protecting American lives and U.S. corporation property. Even during World War I, 
Marines were occasionally sent to Cuba to protect sugar plantations, and by December 1917, there was another brigade of Marines on the island. The 9th Brigade, under the command of Colonel James Mahoney. Revolutionary factions would take a page out of Estonis's playbook and attempt to force the U.S. into military intervention. The United States would frequently travel back to Cuba, and it wouldn't be until 1934 where the U.S. would get rid of the Platt Amendment and make a treaty with one of Cuba's regimes, which significantly decreased U.S. presence in Cuba. The United States was spending considerable resources on its foreign policy. Even with the Platt Amendment gone, the Monroe Doctrine acquired military force in multiple Latin American countries, one of which was Nicaragua. The Marine Corps was ordered to Nicaragua and they would take part in the most substantial intervention of any foreign country. Nicaragua became an independent nation in 1838, but a strong opposition between the two political parties caused the country to have frequent civil wars. The Nicaraguan liberal parties, Jose Santos Zelaya, tried to overtake a few neighboring countries, even though he hadn't addressed the disorder in his own country. He was a thorn in everyone's side. In 1909, Nicaraguans from the eastern part of the country started a revolution. The number of radicals wasn't small, and their combined strength could effectively take charge of the country, something the United States took note of. On November 17, 1909, two U.S. mercenaries serving what rebel forces confessed to trying to blow up a naval vessel carrying government soldiers. Zelaya had them executed. Secretary of State Philander Knox didn't hesitate to break off the relationship between the United States and Nicaragua. He also formally declared that the rebel forces could provide the Nicaraguan people with what they need. Quote, the government of the United States is convinced that the revolution represents the ideals and the will of a majority of the Nicaraguan people more faithfully than does the government of President Zelaya, and that its peaceable control is well nigh as extensive as the higher two so sternly attempted by the government at Managua. He goes on to say, In these circumstances, the president no longer feels for the government of President Zelaya. That respect and confidence which would make it appropriate hereafter to maintain with its normal diplomatic relations implying the will and the ability to respect and assure what is due from one state to another. The government of Nicaragua, which you have hitherto represented, is hereby notified, as will be also the leaders of the revolution, that the government of the United States will hold strictly accountable for the protection of American life and property, the factions de facto in control of the eastern and western portions of the Republic of Nicaragua." Unquote. The United States was now playing a big part in the Nicaraguan Revolution. Historians have argued about the motives of why the U.S. became involved for decades. One big argument is similar to Cuba's intervention, to protect American businesses. The U.S. Navy sailed for Bluefield, Nicaragua, a town controlled by rebel forces. Nicaraguan forces were on their way and with them was their gunboat Venus. The USS Paducah was in the area with the mission of protecting American lives and property, 
and when the Venus showed up, she started to prepare for a bombardment. But the Paducah stepped in, and the ship's commanding officers stopped the Nicaraguan's vessel from firing. Arguing that rebels weren't in the town, and a bombardment would only endanger the lives of civilians, which included American citizens. On May 19th, a landing party was sent to shore to protect U.S. interests. And 11 days later, two companies of Marines, under the leadership of Smedley Butler, showed up. He and his Marines would stay in Nicaragua for three and a half months, where they returned to Panama. The Nicaraguan Conservative Party was in power, and soon, party members started to fight amongst each other on who would control the country. The arguments between party members soon turned into riots and vandalism throughout the country. Adolfo Diaz was elected to president on May 10th, and three weeks later, liberal forces bombed Fort Loma near Managua. Sixty people were killed due to the explosion. A few days later, another explosion would occur, blowing up the weapons store. Diaz was having a bad start to his presidential career, and coupled with the ongoing tensions of the conservative party, he concluded that military intervention by the United States might be needed to restore order. He proposed an amendment to the Nicaraguan Constitution that would allow the U.S. to intervene. General Luis Mena, who was in charge of the council, had himself elected to president and started a new revolution. He took possession of a large number of weapons and ammunition and placed them under the control of Messiah. He and a few hundred followers left Managua and made their way to his weapon stash, recruiting troops along the way. Within 10 days of leaving Managua, he returned with the well-armed military and surrounded the city. He used artillery to bombard the city for a few days and also sent some of his weapons and ammunition to Leon, where another uprising was taking place the Nicaraguan government sent mercenaries to stop the uprising, but the rebels managed to defeat the opposing force. The American minister sent an urgent request for 100 sailors from the USS Annapolis to proceed to Managua on August 3, 1912. Shortly after, Taft authorized an additional 360 Marines under Major Smedley Butler from Panama to Managua to help the Nicaraguan government. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll head to Nicaragua. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is On Power and Ideology, The Managua Lectures by Noam Chomsky. We're going to spend a big chunk of time visiting U.S. foreign policy during the Banana Wars, and this book takes a critical look at U.S. insurrection during this time. This is a fairly short read, or listen. I'm not sure what the appropriate term is for audiobooks, but it provides a well-thought-out argument on the overarching U.S. foreign policy. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.